Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's Bible reading is First Timothy chapters uh, five, verse seventeen through chapter six, verse two. Again, that is First Timothy uh, chapter five, verse seventeen to chapter six, verse two. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain," and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use only a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by the good service are believers and beloved. Well, g'day everyone, I'm Pete. Um, I think I know most people here, but if I haven't met before, um, hello. And um, it's really great to be up here. It's all happening tonight. I've got the survey coming up later tonight. Um, Pete Schockel just sent me a screenshot, which is pretty funny. I think one of the early questions is, what time does a service start? And there's like a, an other box, and he wrote 6.06. .06. So maybe everyone could do that and um, skew the statistics. Um, but um, on a more serious note, it's really great to be here tonight. Uh, we're pursuing a series through 1 Timothy, and uh, tonight we're getting near to the end, um, and we'll be looking at the next section together. Um, please join me as we pray, uh, as we start. Uh, dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's timeless, and that it has things to say so many years after it was written, um, things that are helpful to encourage us and to rebuke us and to change our minds and our hearts and we pray that you'll do those things tonight uh, through your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I should also mention there's going to be a, a question time. If anyone has any questions, so you can... I think my number will come up on some of the slides. Feel free to text them in. I'll do my best to answer them. Um, I've lived in Wollongong for about 11 years. And uh, throughout that time, I've had the pleasure of various housemates... And um, one of them is Brad Parsons. I didn't actually ask his permission, and he's on projector, so it's a bit of a risk um, <laughs> telling, telling a story about Brad. But um, when Brad moved in with me and another guy called Shannon, uh, it was his first time out of home. And that's always a bit of a risk because people, you know, they don't really have an appreciation of, you know, the washing up and, you know, household work. Um, but Brad, quite to the contrary, was a, a great housemate, and he did his fair share of the work. He did his fair share of the cleaning uh, he did his fair share of the cooking. In fact, um, his mother wrote him, hand-wrote him a cookbook. Uh, she got like an A4 
book, uh, 96 page or something. She handwrote all the main recipes in this book and I gave it to Brad and so when he turned up at our place, you know, from time to time he'd flick open the book and cook something. Uh, now, in this book, there was a meal uh, and I use that word very generously. Um, there was a meal uh, which involved the combination of three ingredients uh, and they, would be, they were to be combined and heated and that was the meal. Again, a generous use of the word meal. Uh, and the three ingredients were frankfurts, which is already a bad start, and then baked beans, and finally pineapple. <laughs> and so that was a, a recipe, if I can use that word as well, for creating a meal. And uh, needless to say, Shannon and myself, when we heard about this meal, we, uh, we, we made it very clear that on Brad's night to cook, he was never to cook this meal. And... Um, we had high standards or maybe we had low standards of what a meal was. And so we said, this is never to be cooked. And in fact, we, uh, we, we said, no more than two of these greens are to ever be simultaneously in our house, <laughs> lest the temptation would overcome Brad. Um, because here are three things which don't make sense together. Here are three things which don't really have a cohesion and a belonging together. And I don't know if you've been following along in this passage... But this part of 1 Timothy is a bit like that. There are three things that get bookended together and they don't seem to work together. They don't seem to be a cohesion or a, a logic to why they're together. And the three things are widows, elders and slave masters. And they're just back to back. Widows, elders, slave masters. And it's... it's um, it doesn't seem to make sense. Like you could, you could think of him doing widows, widowers and orphans and that would make sense. You know, there's a logic to that and there'd be a theme of bereavement. But he puts these three people groups together. Um, is it random? Is, it, is, it, is, there a, is there a thread tying them together? And there is a thread tying them together and it's a surprising one. And it's the thread of honour or respect. See, as each of these three sections begins, there is a statement about honour. Uh, the first one's in chapter 5, verse 3, and it says, honour the widows. And then the second section about elders, it says, let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honour. And then finally, in chapter 6, verse 1, we, we, we read, let all who under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honour. And so the, the logical thread which ties these three sections together is the theme of honour. I'm going to use that tonight um, a bit synonymously with respect because it's a word that we would be more familiar with. So the concept which ties this whole chapter together is that of honour or respect. It's the logical basis for this whole part of the letter of 1 Timothy. And so tonight I want to ask three questions about honour from the passage and see what it has to say. Three questions about honour. And if you're not a Christian tonight... Um, I don't want you to feel like I'm preaching at you and these are things for you to, to be taking on board. I just invite you to listen in on this part of the Bible where instructions are being given to the church for how, how it should um, operate, how its leadership should work and how respect and honour should be integral parts of the community. So, three questions. The first one is why should we honour elders? Why should we honour elders? Now, uh, I think in our context... That question is not as hard to answer because we, we have really good elders at our church. If you don't know who they are, I'll, I'll read them out because I think it's helpful to know who our elders are because we're talking about elders tonight. Our elders are John Hobson, John Garrett, Simon Lainson, 
Steve Shaw and John Vidler, in addition to our four pastors, Simon, Simon, <laughs> my apologies, Rod, Mark, Joel and Paul Chan, who, who is the uh, uh, pastor of the Chinese service. So there are elders, okay? And I think in our context, it makes sense why we should honour them or respect them because they're great people and we have a lot of respect naturally for them as people and so it's not hard to, to, to answer that question. But for the church to whom Paul is writing, which is the Ephesian church, it's a much harder question because their church is full of dodgy leaders, okay? There's leaders who are getting drunk all the time. There's leaders who uh, love money and are greedy. Uh, there's leaders who teach bad things. They teach, you know, marriage is wrong. They teach um, asceticism. And so the question is much more pertinent to them. Why should we respect our elders? And I think Paul gives two reasons here, two reasons why the elders should be respected. The first one is that they work hard. So if you have a look uh, in verse 17, uh, and uh, interestingly, I should point out first that he does restrict it to the good elders. Okay, So it says, let the elders who rule well be cons considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour. Okay, And that, that word is actually used elsewhere in the, in, the, um, in the book and translated the word toil. And it has the concept of hard, tiring, exhausting labour behind it. It's an effort which will tire you out. And it's really hard to be a pastor. I don't think we fully appreciate it. I think sometimes we think, and I, I found a meme on the internet for this, I think sometimes we, um, we have, is it up? I'll give you five seconds to read it. I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate that being a pastor is hard. We have a sort of a, you know, a view, I think maybe for Joel's case, coffee would be better a place than eating chicken or whatever that is. We might, we might have this perception that being a pastor is pretty easy, that it's not, you know, it's not that arduous. And I actually, this week in preparing the talk, spoke to the pastors and asked them, you know, tell me about last week, tell me about the week before, you know, how busy were you, that sort of thing. Rod, uh, last week did a 55-hour week, the week before he did a 60-hour week. We pay him for 40 hours a week. So he's working 50% more than we're paying him for. And that's, that's not out of the ordinary for Rod. Huge hours. And on top of the hours, and I think I've got a screenshot of, Joel was kind enough to send me uh, a screenshot of his calendar for last week. And you can see on his calendar, he's booked out. Really busy. He's even, you know, time doubled in when his birthday party is. <laughs> when his day off is. Very, very organised guy, Joel. A lesson to us all in personal time management. Um, but being a pastor is hard purely for the amount of time that it requires. Huge amounts of time. But that's not what makes it really hard, I, I don't think. Being a, a, a pastor is hard because there's no division between work and the rest of your life. Your life is always on display. And every decision you make about parenting, where to live... Um, you know, how to, what house should you buy, what car should you buy. Every decision you make is in the public eye of your church. And there's no, it, it go to a party, every decision you make at a party, how do you behave, how do you, all of these things are on, are on display. And there's the, the inherent pressure. You can never switch off. You can never um, just be not a pastor. Your whole life is work. And um, that's true of pastors' wives as well. 
we don't pay them the church doesn't pay them but but they they're in the fishbowl with with the pastor you know everyone watching their life if i have a hard day at work um you know it's because a kid's been hard to deal with i'm a teacher or a, a colleague has been hard to deal with and you know generally i can just switch that off when i come home i can forget about it it's not something you know i can have a weekend away from all of that but if a pastor has a bad day it's because someone who's their friend is having a personal crisis maybe a divorce maybe an affair maybe a crisis of faith these are not things that you can go home from and just put out of your mind because they're your friends so everything about a pastor's ministry about the things which make it hard uh, are things which can't be switched off they can't be forgotten they can't be um, put into the back of the mind so being a pastor is really hard i think and it's important to pre- appreciate that and that's the first reason that we should respect our pastors or our elders who teach which in our case is our pastors because what they do their work their work long hours and hard so we should honor and respect them for their hard work their sheer hard work and the second reason i think we should respect and honor them is because they preach and teach if you notice there in verse 17 it says um you know consider the elders worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching uh preaching and teaching is really powerful and influential and it's it's the central thing in a church i remember going to another church in Wollongong once and i only visited it once and um uh, i assume this was just a really bad day to visit but they had um they had a talk and the pastor in his talk was was talking about money and how you know god would like to bless everyone and and help people to become successful and so on and at one point in his sermon he said something like i just love our church all the young men in our church who are who are just starting to own property and starting to be successful and starting to get ahead um it's really wonderful now that sort of teaching from the pulpit that preaching and teaching will shape the culture of the church what will what will older men talk to young men about how how's your property portfolio how can i support you what what decisions what's what's holding you back that'll become what mentoring is about in the church that'll become what people value in each other in the church preaching and teaching it sets the tone and the importance of everything in the church it's crucial and it also has a powerful role in personal lives uh the bible is the way that god changes us it's the way he grows us rebukes us changes our heart changes our mind and so because of this central role this importance of preaching and teaching both in the life of the church and the life of the individual those who do it should be respected and honored so that's the first question why should we honor elders because they work hard both in the difficulty and the challenges and the hours and because they preach and teach and that is so important personally and corporately the second question and this is the one that I'll probably spend the most time talking about is how should we honor elders how should we honor elders or how should we respect elders and this is um this is a pretty valid question i think because honoring people is not something that's part of our general terminology you know we don't say you know, we often will say oh you know that person go through a hard time we should care for them we should um support them we should encourage them we might say that person did a great job we should show that we appreciate them but we very rarely say oh we should honor them it's not a word that we would use and or or we should show respect to that person that's not it just doesn't come up um i had a look and there is no emoji for honor or respect there are a lot of emojis as well 
that there's none for honor and respect. So we know how to express all these other things, but honor or respect is one that we don't usually um, decide to show people. And I think maybe it conflicts a bit with our concept of humility, like showing respect and honor to someone. Maybe it conflicts a bit with what we view about their humility and our humility. I think, maybe. But this is the big one for us to think about tonight. How should we honor elders? Because we've just established that we definitely should. Okay? And I have three things from this passage that I think, three ways in which, um, three ways in which we should honor and respect elders. The first is by paying them. So I don't know if you noticed the humorous um, change of topic here or apparent change of topic. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox. There's sort of a, there's an interesting um, follow-up statement there, isn't it? The scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labourer deserves his wages. So what Paul is doing here is quoting two different things. The first quote um, is from Deuteronomy 25 from the Old Testament and the second quote is from Jesus. And together... Paul is combining these quotes to say elders should be paid, particularly the ones who preach and teach. And that is the form of respect. Now, the first quote, um, it sort of appears randomly in a list of laws in Deuteronomy. And um, the concept is, so after you harvest grain, the next step is to separate the actual grains from the rest of the, you know, the leaf and the stem and all the rest of it, which you've chopped off with the grain. And so... Um, one method for that was to put it on a hard surface and get a donkey or an ox to, to trample it. And then after that, it would be sort of disconnected and you could sort of sweep up the grains and get rid of the, uh, you know, the rest of the plant, which was no use. And the law states that, you know, when you've got an ox doing that, and naturally the ox might want to take a mouthful of the grain, that you should let it. You shouldn't muzzle it so that it can't eat some of the grain. And elsewhere in the Bible... Um, In 1 Corinthians 9, actually, Paul uses the same verse and he says, did God write this because he cares about donkeys? No, he wrote it because he cares about people and this is a principle for Christian ministry that people who work deserve remuneration from their work. The second quote, and it's interesting that Jesus Jesus and Deuteronomy are being put on equal footing here by Paul. You know, he says, Scripture says this, Jesus says this. Therefore, do it. You know, he's, he's, he's giving equal um, importance to both of those things. But this quote from Jesus, which can be found um, in Luke 10 or in Matthew 10, uh, is, it occurs when Jesus sends out his 72 disciples to be, to be missionaries, basically. He sends them out and he says, don't take any money with you and stay at people's houses and eat their food and the labour is worth of his wage. That's what he says as Jesus sends out his, his missionaries. And, and so there Jesus is, is applying this principle that those who are involved in Christian ministry deserve remuneration uh, or you know, some type of recompense for, for the work that they do from the people that they serve and minister to. And so um, by combining these two quotes, I think we arrive at something which we in Australia would consider a basic rule of life, that those who work should be paid this quote, the second quote, could almost be from the Australian Workers' Union, I think, that the labour work deserves his wages. Uh, I remember I had a gap year after school and I went, I went and worked for a carpenter for a year 
Uh, and I remember really clearly, I don't remember heaps of things clearly, but one thing I remember really clearly, we were driving through a rich suburb of Sydney and um, my mate who I was working for, the builder, he points out a house and he said, it was a really massive house as well, he said, that guy owes my dad 80 grand. Um, and he's, his dad's company had gone bankrupt and he was a guy with a massive house who owed him 80 grand still. And um, it was hard for my friend not to say it with anger in his voice. Because we all have this idea, this basic principle that someone works, they should be paid, you know? I don't think this is revolutionary, that if someone works, they should be paid. I think we need to hear it, though, tonight, because um, I don't think we, in our, in our service particularly, make the connection between our benefit and our payment. So... The principle which is just being clearly said by Paul is that those who benefit from the ministry of teachers and preachers should financially support the preachers and teachers. That's the principle. Um, and our, in our church, our four pastors are paid by the church and um, our church's entire income comes from the donations of the members. And so the way that we support our, the way that we pay and remunerate our pastors is by putting money in the, in the offertory. And I have to admit, this week, while I was preparing this sermon, I had to stop and I had to, um, maybe not yet, Brad, I had to stop, I had to stop and um, I had to repent because I hadn't been regularly giving money to the church. I had to stop writing the talk and say, I need to, you know, obey it before I can give a talk on it. And, um, you know, I think... Our service in particular, we, we don't um, give as much. Like, I mean, that's true but of the statistics from our church. And I think that we, maybe we're younger and we, we, we're not as in, you know, we have as much money to spare. Um, that's, that's also true. Um, but I think, nevertheless, the principle here is that those who benefit from the preaching and teaching of elders should financially support those who are doing the preaching and teaching uh, and so if you are a regular member here and you do benefit from the effort that gets put in each week to write a sermon and the effort that gets put in each week to administer the church and make home groups happen and all these things, I think the, the Bible is very clearly saying that, that we need to be uh, donating money to that. And so I... Thank you, Brad. The, um, here it is. Write it down. Uh, write down the BSB and account number. Um, set up a donation. Maybe you can only give $10 a week. But you should give something, I think. If you're a regular member and you, and you benefit each week, then you should, I and you should be honouring the elders, our pastors, by giving them money. Yep. So that's the first one. Uh, and I think it's a bit awkward to talk about money. And I should say, none of the pastors knew I was going to say that. So they haven't been putting the pressure on me or the treasurer. Um, <laughs> It's a good thing Dave Colombre is not still the treasurer. He might have put some pressure on me to say that. Um, but it's really important, I think. Uh, and it's one that we need to hear, particularly our, our service. So I challenge you to start giving, even if it's not much, um, if you benefit regularly. So that's the first one. How should we honour our elders? By paying them. The second way that we should honour or respect our elders is by careful discipline. So if we keep reading... Um, 
we, we get to verse 19. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And so uh, Paul is setting up a few things here. Firstly, he's saying that um, there shouldn't be any flippant uh, accusations against elders. Um, naturally, the role of being an elder, you know, presiding over disputes in the church and offering pastoral help, naturally that role would, um, you know, create friction between people and open itself up to criticism of how different things were handled. And so it is important that the role is protected um, in a sense and that no flippant um, or unbased accusations come to the elders or about the elders. And, and probably in this context, it's more to do with official complaints, uh, you know, uh, formal complaints about the elders in this church. And Paul is saying two or three witnesses I don't think the point is how many witnesses because an increase from two to three is an increase of 50%. So I think he's saying that the basis for the um, accusation must be well-founded. There must be um, a solid basis for it. Uh, there must be no flippant accusations against elders. So that's the first step and it's, it's part of honouring the role that we say we won't just listen to what everyone's saying. There needs to be some substance. There needs to be some evidence behind any accusation before we will listen to it. However, on the second, uh, on the second um, point that he makes, if there is a valid uh, complaint, a valid accusation, and the elder persists in sin, they will be rebuked in front of all um, so that the rest will, be stand in, will stand in fear. So there is the concept of protecting and, and sort of guarding the role of the elder against flippant accusation, but then there is the role, there, there is also the idea that if there is sin, then there will be a public denouncement of that. And so protection, but also public shaming. And both serve to add honour and respect to the role of elder. Uh, and it is pretty important, I think, in the life of a church, if there is, if there is a leadership um, issue, that it is dealt with in this way, openly, um, transparently. Uh, I, I know of churches where no one really knows what happened, but someone was asked to leave, and the rumours and the, the con you know the controversy about oh I heard it was him, but no I heard you know it needs to be publicly said, uh, and and the elders will stand the other elders will stand in fear it says at such a public um, denouncement, and so both of these things the protection against flippant um, accusation and the public acknowledgement of sin serve to add respect and honour to the role of an elder. And um, before I move on from this, it is interesting, I think, that Paul says to Timothy, um, and it's very serious actually, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Um, the elect angels is probably invoking imagery of judgment, you know, the, the angels coming with God and Jesus to do the judging of the world. That's probably, that, that's a common theme in the Bible. That's probably why the angels are mentioned here. And I also think that there's a sense in which Timothy himself has two or three witnesses watching him. God, Jesus, the elect angels. And there's this idea that no one's above the law, that no one will not be accountable for their actions. So the elders will be held to account 
after two or three witnesses, they will be held to account for their actions publicly. And now I think Paul is setting up the idea that, well, Timothy, you will be held to account for your actions too. What you're doing is in front of God, Jesus, and the elect angels. And so, you know, there's no level of authority in the church where you're above the law, where you're not to be held to account. So that's the second way that we, that we honour and respect elders. Firstly, we pay them. Secondly, we carefully discipline elders. Thirdly, we respect and honour elders by considered appointment of elders. By considered appointment of elders. So if we keep reading, and I'm actually, as I read now, I'm going to skip verse 23 because it's a bit of a tangent. I will talk about it later, but it is a tangent to his main point. So from verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And what Paul is saying here is that true character comes out over time. Sometimes you can see it straight away. Sometimes it takes time to see it. Whether it's good or whether it's bad. That's what he's saying. Good works are conspicuous, but even if they aren't, they'll eventually become apparent. Sins, some of them are conspicuous and obvious, but others take a while to come out. Either way, watch someone's life for long enough and you'll see who they truly are. That's his point. I don't think he's saying that you've got to find someone who's sinless. But I think because we're talking about elders, we're thinking about the things which disqualify someone from being an elder. Not lovers of money, not lovers of wine, good managers of their household, hospitable, and so on. You watch someone's life for long enough, you'll know whether they do those things or whether they don't do those things. And if you've only known someone, someone for a short amount of time, you can't be confident either way. And so, for that reason, in verse 22... Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, which is how you commission elders. It's this, the ceremonial way of commissioning elders. You put your hands, lay, everyone lays hands on them, and, and it's, it's, I guess, an official tradition. And so Paul says, don't do that hastily before you know what their life is like. He also says, do not, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And I think there's a sense that if Timothy did appoint some elders flippantly or without knowing them well enough, and they did damage in the church and led people astray, Timothy would, would have some responsibility in that. He would have shared in that sin by enabling it, and he would not have kept himself pure. So that's why he says, that's why Paul says, do not be hasty in laying hands on the elders, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And so this is the way that we honour elders, is by careful considered appointment of of who who is right to be an elder and i think uh there's there's inherent call to self-reflection here the concept that true character comes out over time you can't hide who you are a facade will eventually crumble i think that is cause for self-reflection you know what is the trajectory of your life is it towards less sin or is it to more sin are there sins in your life that you aren't fighting because that will eventually become visible? I think it's, it's a call to self-reflection that, that time reveals character um, 
And so we should examine our hearts and think about that. Um, so the, the second question, how should we honour elders? How should we respect elders? Three answers. We should pay them, we should discipline them carefully, and we should carefully appoint them as well. Before I move on to the final question, I do just want to address that bit in brackets there about alcohol. Um, and it's definitely a tangent to his main argument here, but it's really understandable why it gets mentioned. Um, so it's verse 23. I'll read it out. It says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So it's obvious that Timothy has made a decision not to drink any alcohol. Um, very likely because there were bad leaders in the church who loved getting drunk. And so Timothy thought something along the lines of, I will keep myself pure. I will not participate in the sins of others. I won't drink alcohol. And so when Paul says that exact phrase, keep yourself pure, don't participate in the sins of others, he needs to clarify, by the way, have some alcohol. I'm not endorsing your non-alcoholic lifestyle when I say keep yourself pure, don't participate in the sins of others. And so that's why it's, you know, slotted in here in the middle of a different argument uh, that Paul needs to clarify what he's actually saying or what he's not saying. And I think it's pretty interesting that um, in a church which has the, the problem of drunk elders that we get the instruction, oh, have a bit of wine. And in a church which is struggling with greedy elders, we say, make sure you pay the elders. The solution to a dangerous extreme is not the opposite extreme. The solution to greedy, money-hungry elders is not no payment, but the gospel-centered use of money. The solution to an excess of wine and drunkenness is not no wine, no alcohol, but gospel-centered, wise use of wine. And that would be a principle we could explore further with more time, but it's interesting to point it out, I think. So moving on to the third and final question, who else should we honour? Who else should we honour? Uh, now we move into chapter 6, there's two verses, uh, and we read this, let all who are under yoke, under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, it's probably worth um, pointing out some differences between African-American slavery and first century slavery because they are very different. And I think we don't understand the differences. So when we read slavery, we, we think of the, the horrible, racist, um, you know, slavery, which, which we know about from movies and so on. But it is very different in the early century. It's still, still not great, but uh, a lot different. So for starters, it wasn't racial. Um, people, people could choose to become slaves if they wanted. In fact, a lot of people would choose to become slaves in order to get um, citizenship as a Roman. It was a pathway to that. So if you wanted to be a Roman citizen, you know, you could be a slave for a bit and uh, depending on who you were in, uh, enslaved to. Uh, it's probably likely that 30% of the city were slaves and so it's a big issue. And that's why in Ephesians as well, it's a big section. And Colossians is a similar demographic. You get sections on slavery because it's a third of the population would be slaves. Uh, it, it also didn't determine your social status. So a slave could be a CEO. A slave could be a government official. Um, a slave could own things, own property, own other slaves, actually. 
and um, they could save up their money. And I, I was reading that there was a bit of a, a social problem because some slaves sold up, you know, became quite wealthy, and then the old money, you know, of the day was a bit. Who are these slaves who are rich, rich as rich as us, ex-slaves? And so it's um, it's quite different. It's quite a different picture, and it's probably more comparable to an employer-employee situation in our time. So the struggle for the original hearers, I think is that they would not respect their masters if their masters were also Christians. Uh, and I think that is probably something along the lines of, if you were at church, you know, everyone's equal. There's, not, there's neither slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So, you know, you and your master would be brothers at church. And then you go to the workforce and suddenly he's your master again. It would be natural to be a bit less respectful or a bit more familiar maybe Oh yeah, I'm you know I'm good mates with him. You know we 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 had communion on the weekend. You know it's sort of it's less likely that you would show the same respect and deference that another slave would show to their master without that same connection in in the Christian faith. And so Paul says those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And Paul is actually concerned that this detracts from the Christian faith, that this sort of um, lack of respect in the workplace on the grounds of Christian faith actually undermines the Christian faith. And so he speaks against it here. I actually don't think we struggle as much with that in our context. If you have a Christian boss um, and you're a Christian, maybe there is a sense of which you're more familiar with them. Uh, but I don't think that's our big problem. I think our big prom- problem is just like, generic disrespect for authority um, in Australia. You know, who are the least respected people in Australia? The leaders, the politicians. You know, that's who are the least respected, the least valued, the most criticised people group. I think, I don't know if it's a, you know, we're a nation of convicts. I, I don't know if, if that's part of it. But we, ge- we generally, um, the higher someone is in authority, the less respect we have for them. I think that's our problem. And the same principle applies, that disrespect in the workplace detracts from the Christian faith. Uh, I, I can remember seeing this as a teacher. It doesn't happen much, but I remember, you know, there there's some really openly Christian kids at school, and I remember one of them being, you know, a bit a bit of a disrespectful kid once, and another teacher made a comment. It's, I've just remembered it was probably, you know, six years ago or something. They made a comment, that, oh, those Christian kids, you know, no respect. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a... It was, it was a serious comment. It was an angry comment. Um, and it detracts from the Christian faith, I think, when there's disrespect where there should be respect and it detracts from the Christian faith. And it is hard. Uh, you know, we all have... I think, I think it's the, probably more common to have a boss that you don't get on with than it is to have one that you do. Um, bosses irritate you if they're disorganised, if they don't um, appreciate or value you. You know, it, it's hard to keep respecting them. And um, I think as Christians, I mean, I can't even think of heaps of conversations this week with at least three or four different people who've, who've said similar things to me that they're struggling at work at the moment with, with this idea of, of, of people they don't get on with and having to show respect. And uh, I, think, I think the instruction is clear that we show respect. And in so doing, we bring, um, we bring respect to the Christian faith. It's interesting that this is the only honour which isn't limited. 
So in the widow's one, it says, honour the widows, but only the true widows. And then it said, honour the elders, but only the good ones. And now it says, honour the bosses, whether they're Christian or not. It's the one which is opened instead of being restricted. And that's an interesting thing, I think, that we, um, that we need to be respectful in, in the workplace. So that's who else we should honour. Who, who else should we honour? We should, we should honour our bosses. And finally, um, I want to say that we should honour God. Uh, this um, theme of honour, which has been going for a whole chapter, really. It's a really big, like the whole part of this, um, of these, these, these chapters in 1 Timothy is about honour. It's a theme that ties it all together. It's a really big theme. And if we zoom out from this chapter, we actually see honour come up two more times, once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 6, at the end and the beginning of the book. And so it's a theme which flows through the book. And I want to finish by looking at those two bookends of honour, the theme of honour. And they're both, um, they're both climaxes of the book of 1 Timothy. And you can imagine Paul dictating his letter, you know, fist pumping the table as he wrote these verses because they're, you know, he doesn't hold back. And so I want to finish by reading, reading these two verses and commenting briefly on them. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Be honour. There's that theme of honour coming back. And here is the truly unrestricted honour because it is never not to be given. Forever and ever this honour is due. And, and the other bookend at the end of chapter 6 or almost near the end of chapter 6, I'm going to pick it up from verse 15. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. So you see, this thread of honour flows through the whole book of 1 Timothy and it would be neglectful for me to finish the sermon by just saying, oh, we honour the widows, we honour the elders, we honour the slave masters or our employers. Because the one who is most deserving of our honour and respect is the one who is immortal, invisible, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To him belong the honour and the glory forever. The truly unrestricted amount of honour. And if you aren't a Christian here tonight, this might be the one thing to think about. The God who made all things, the one who is invisible, the one who made us, the one who loves us, is worthy of respect. If those things are true, if he made everything, he is worthy of respect. He is worthy of being followed. And so it would be worth thinking, um, what are the things that he wants of us as his people, as the people that he's made, as the one who has invented love, uh, who understands suffering, the one who owns all things. What respect and what honour does he deserve from us as his creations? And so what have we learnt tonight about honour, the theme of honour in this chapter? Firstly, that we should honour elders because they work hard 
and their work is hard and that they preach and teach and that's really valuable. Secondly, we've learned that we honour them by paying them, by carefully disciplining them and by carefully appointing them. And finally, we've learned that we should also honour our bosses as this brings respect to the Christian faith and we should honour above all God who made all things. Let me pray. Father, you are the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To you be honour and glory forever. Amen.